Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast. This free podcast is made possible through gifts by people like you. Please consider making a donation through the donate button on the website to help us offer unique audio, video, and text-based teachings on the internet and to grow this community library. Michael's teaching bridges the gap between inner healing and social change by synthesizing traditional spiritual teachings with the insights of the West. To learn about Michael's international retreats and workshops, please visit michaelstoneteaching.com. Thank you for your support. Good evening. This is talk number four in a series on Carl Jung and the Dharma. It was supposed to be the final talk in this series, but I've decided, like usual, to extend it uh, to include next week. Uh, Mostly because I've been doing most of the talking, as I will tonight, and I want to have some time more for some uh, practice together around this. So just a note before I go on about the meditation practice. Um, When we're practicing mindfulness of breathing, I think sometimes the language sets up this problem where we hear the word mindfulness and we think of the mind. And then we hear the word breathing and we think of something happening in the body. And then, because we have this transition, mindfulness of breathing, it seems like the mind is watching the body. And a lot of times in meditation instruction, we get this sense that the subject is watching an object. So I'm mindful of breathing, and there's a me that's watching the experience. So it's really important that we understand that when we're meditating, the the process is to feel breathing. And when you feel inhaling and exhaling, then you become inhaling and exhaling. So what we're trying to do in mindfulness practice is actually erase the observer. So the problem is that most of the time we're observing our experience. There's this separation where I'm watching what's going on, I have an internal dialogue about what's going on, we're trying to do in the process is feel the breath at a level where there's no observer. So you become breathing. And the best way to do that is to experience the sensations that make up the inhale. And this takes a little while to get the hang of. And one of the ways to stay really concentrated with it is to start at the very beginning of your inhale. Because if you watch what happens is at the beginning of the inhale... In order to avoid the level of sensation, the mind sets up an image of your navel or whatever that looks like. So we want to drop below that too, so there's just breathing with no me left. So it's really intimate. And, uh, as I was adding tonight, uh, eventually what happens when you can do that is then you start to focus on the part of your breathing that is pleasurable. 
And uh, that can only work if you can get the first part. So if you try to focus on what's pleasurable and you can't get the, the feeling of breathing right at the beginning of breathing, then what happens is, is then you start pushing away anything else. And that actually gets you tense. So you're like, I don't want anything else. I'm just supposed to feel pleasure. Why doesn't it feel blissful? So it's really important that first you get this sense of just becoming inhaling right at the beginning of your inhale. And um, it's really easy. It just takes a long time. Or it doesn't take any time. And if you have a fresh mind at the beginning of your inhale, then it's fresh. So um, more on that next week. That's all we're going to work on next week. Nobody will come. (laughs) I'm just attached to my own theory of meditation. Um, So, the Buddha had a calling. And when he was young, he was looking into his own experience and saw a consistent... Uh, repetitive groove of feeling unsatisfied, being unsatisfied. And we can look at the Buddha's life as saying that the uh, showing us that the depth of his discontent was directly proportional to the depth of his awakening. And we could say the same thing about Carl Jung. Carl Jung was uh, deeply unsatisfied as we've been exploring for three weeks. All the stories I've been telling you about his childhood. Um, Since he was a young person, he was split in himself. A part of him was trying to connect with school kids, was trying to accomplish algebra, and another part of him, he felt, belonged to a different century. And he couldn't keep those parts together except uh, through a kind of ritual that he would create every few years that changed. The ritual of, having, uh, of carving a man out of the ruler in his pencil case, the ritual of sitting on a stone and making a fire, the ritual of taking a stone, a round stone, and painting half of it one color, and holding this stone and hiding this stone to kind of feel like he was together as a person. And, you know, I think if we look at our own lives, there is something that happened to all of us as kids. Different experiences, some of them really bright, and some of them maybe darker or difficult, that brought us here tonight. And I think the depth or or our ability to be able to drop in to our uh, um, dis-ease, to the way we are unsatisfied has to do with the depth of our insight. And that's why over and over, my job every week for years now is just to encourage you to drop, to be in that place. Um, As we explored last night, I think from Wilson's question, um, for both Jung and the Buddha, which might be surprising for someone who we considered a, a kind of Um, prominent psychologists of the last century, the goal of the path is not to be happy. Now, I know everybody's reading Matthew Ricard and Time Magazine and 
how mindfulness is going to make you happy. But the goal of the practice as articulated by the Buddha, who also thought of himself as a doctor, is to be free. And like Jung, from the Buddha's perspective, the Buddha's perspective, being free is not dependent on feeling a certain way. It's not dependent on being happy. If it were, then when you're lying in the hospital in pain, or you experience chronic pain, then you can't be free. Because who's happy when they're in pain? So this is a really important point. And for Jung, there's something added to it that you don't get so much in the Buddha's language, but you do actually a lot in Hinduism, which is this sense that our process of waking up also has to do with listening to a kind of calling in our life. So you see in the Buddha's story this calling. It's not like it's a calling like someone has a calling to become a lawyer or something. But, but maybe it can be that. But this deeper calling that's at work all the time through our dreams, through our daydreams, uh, through things we see around us and what we're called to, the way you're called to certain arts, the way you're called to certain literature, the way you're called to certain spiritual practices. And Jung was very interested in what happens to you when you're not paying attention to these callings. This is what he's really interested in. In Zen, there are a lot of teachings around exactly this point. Uh, There's one wonderful uh, teaching by Yunmen that goes like this. Each of you has your own light. If you try to see it, you can't. The darkness is dark, dark. What's your light? So first it just sounds like Japanese cleverness. <laughs> but listen closely to what he's saying. Each of you has your own light. You each have your own light. If you try to see it, you can't see it. We all know this, right? If you're, when you're really in your life, you can't see your life. You're just in your life. When you're really fully breathing, and you actually get a sense of what it means to be breathing, then you're not there anymore. You're so there, but there's no separate you that's able to see that. So you can't see the light. Either you're the light, or you're looking for it. If you try to see it, you can't. The darkness is dark, dark. Which I don't know if this reminds you of what Jung said a couple weeks ago. If something's unconscious, it's unconscious. It's a wonderful definition of the unconscious. If if something's unconscious, it's unconscious. And a lot of people are like, oh, that's that thing I do that's unconscious. That's not what Jung means by unconscious. So the darkness is dark. What's your light? Well, where do you go to find the light? You have to also um, be in that space that includes the darkness. In Sanskrit, this is called maha, which most people translate as big. It's a terrible trend. But maha is something that's so big that it takes into account opposites. So, for example, maha is like saying life-death. We, we usually say life and death. But the maha perspective is just life-death. Right? 
both, holding both. So Jung, in his concept of the self that we explored two weeks ago, or was it last week, (laughs) says that the self, because it contains what's conscious, the light, and what can't be conscious, the dark, and because the dark has no limit, because memory has no limit, because our memory drops down into cultural memory, has no limit, that the self has to include all of that, which means it can't be known. Because you can never know the end of it. It's dark. Dark, 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 as far as you can go. So, this was haunting Jung. And in 1913, Jung finally left Freud. And he dropped into a long period of really deep introversion. He withdrew from his academic and his professional life. He gave up all his writing. And he gave up presidency of the International Psychoanalytic Society, which was really not just giving up a post, but giving up relationships with all the people around him, giving up success. I don't know if here if anyone's ever been in this experience before, where you're in a position where everyone around you is telling you how successful you are. Deep in your heart you know, especially he's young still, deep in his heart he knows he has to walk away from this. That he has this calling that there is something about the psyche that needs to be looked at that can't be captured in Freud's theories of this smaller self. Uh, He leaves his post at Zurich University and he starts feeling the pull of images and dreams and voices and hallucinations. And he writes about this later. The years when I pursued my inner images were the most important of my life. In them... Everything essential was decided. It all began then, and the details are only supplements. At first, it swamped me, but it was the prime material for my lifetime's work. Jung describes in his autobiography that at this point, leaving Freud, he felt suspended in midair, and he had no idea which direction to go, he had no idea how to land. And um, he had no scaffolding because, remember, Jung was really looking into himself, trying to figure himself out. And leaving Freud was also leaving the structure of how he thought of himself. I don't know if we all think we have no philosophy. We're yogis. But actually, we have a structure for how we think of, of ourselves, how we think of our lives. We, we have, not, and I don't mean by values, but ways we see ourselves. I think I talked about this last week a little bit with the example of the CBC recordings. We experience ourselves in a certain way. So Jung writes, the dialogue with myself became uncomfortable and I stopped thinking. I couldn't think anymore and I reached a dead end. What was he dropping into? He thought maybe it was schizophrenia He thought it was psychosis. He had memories of all the patients at the Brugolsley Hospital where he was working who had uh, psychotic breaks. And 
he also says in his autobiography that at the time he felt like there was no choice. He writes, I was at the edge of a cosmic abyss. It was like a voyage to the moon or a descent into empty space. And at nighttime, images started coming to him faster and relentlessly. So he started writing. He went into his house. He, he basically locked himself in his house. And he started writing using quotes from his heroes, Holderlin, Nietzsche, Goethe, Frobenius, Robins, and others. And after a couple of months of trying to write to keep himself together, he couldn't do it anymore. So he put his books away. Can you imagine somebody who's like as deeply read as you and just, it's not in the books. It's not in the books. Um, he felt that his first obligation before anything was to go down into the depths of his psyche. And he also trusted, and here's the important point, he trusted that the psyche, that, that, that what was going on in the depths of his psyche was a self-regulating system. Or as we explored a few weeks ago, it was compensatory. So if the psyche was calling him in this way to leave whatever was doing he was doing and start to listen to the movements of what was going on in his unconscious. Well, he didn't think it was his unconscious. He just thought it was unconsciousness. Um, that somehow this would regulate him. How many of us have this trust? You see this all the time in, in meditation retreats, right? Is, you know, people sometimes when they're new at it, the first few days, they're just scared. They're just scared that if they actually let go, they might drop into something that will be overwhelming. So then Jung has a dream. And this is a recurrent dream, by the way. A monstrous, destructive flood crashes over the northern and low-lying lands between the North Sea and the Alps. The waves are hurled forward, and as the flood comes towards Switzerland, he sees the mountains reach up immediately to protect the cities. The floating rubble of civilization and drowned bodies of thousands float in the sea, turning it into a tsunami of blood. Waves of blood cover Switzerland. Now, I've always had the thought, and I don't know if maybe other academics or something have thought this, but his dreams to me sound so much like prophetic dreams about the coming war. And it never really gets talked about, but it seems to me kind of interesting that he has these dreams of these tsunamis coming, killing cities, and just the cities covered in blood. Um, he'd wake up in the morning nauseous, powerless, and usually he'd have visions of the dream that lasted an hour. In another vision, Arctic waves crash into land, killing thousands all over <coughs> Europe. And later, the Arctic dreams became images of frozen waves crashing into the ground and then becoming trees. At the time, he starts practicing yoga. Um, he doesn't talk about what the yoga practices are that he's doing, but he's doing some kind of breathing practice. And in the yoga texts, he discovers the importance of mandalas. So if you read traditional texts, there's lots of talks of circles. So chakra is a circle, 
or a mandala. And he feels that if he starts to paint mandalas, then he'll understand what's going on in his psyche. And that maybe this is what the old yogis were doing. So he starts making his own pigments because he needs to get the colors right for his visions. So he's having visions, making pigments, writing down his dreams, and painting these mandalas, which he thinks of the mandalas as a way of holding the self together, which is uh, actually what mandalas were for. Um, He has another dream where the frosty um, uh, trees that came from the waves transform into sweet grapes with healing juices. He have, he, then he has dreams of falling through a hole in the earth, and when he stayed attention to that day after day, he started to see that these themes were moving from total destruction and horror to new growth. I should say, by the way, that at the end of these two years that he spends doing this, two years, he has 1,330 pages of dream notes and something like 800 mandalas. And if you've ever seen some of these, you, you can see them in this red book that was published recently. His, his, he's an amazing painter. He has really incredible mandalas. In 1912, approaching Christmas, uh, 13 rather, Jung has a dream where he's on a balcony of an Italian design with pillars, a marble floor, and an expansive area, and he's sitting on a gold Renaissance chair in front of a stunning table made of green stone that seems to be emerald. His children are gathered around him, and he looks out into the distance and realizes he's in the tower of a castle. Then... A few nights later, the same dream happens, but there's more to it. A messenger dove lands, and the messenger dove is transformed into a girl with golden hair, who then goes off to play with children. Then the small girl returns and puts her arms around Jung's neck. Then she vanishes, and a dove appears and speaks in a human voice. And here's what the dove says to him. Only in the first hours of the night can I transform myself into a human being while the male dove is busy with the twelve dead. Then uh, she flies up into the sky which is blue and Jung wakes up. After this dream, he has a series of images where a person becomes older and older and older. They move back through many centuries and then they become Jung himself. So I could keep going here. It's like, you start reading these dreams, it's unbelievable. And, and how accurate he was. Then New Year's passes, and then it's January of 1913, and um, Jung is just feeling panic. He's totally overwhelmed. He can't keep up to the dreams. He sits down one day on his chair. He's doing some breathing practices. He's finished painting, and he gets still. And then he has the thought, I have to drop down. And he has the experience of dropping down through the chair, through the floor, and into the earth. This is actually my favorite part of the story. Because 
just in working with so many of you in my own life, there are these phases in practice where we become really, really still. And then sometimes we don't move anywhere. And our practice can become a little stale. And usually those are the places where we've kind of hit a plateau and it's time to drop deeper. And I think sometimes it takes such courage to be able just to sit there. You know what? Not even that dramatic. Just the person who has anxiety. You sit there, you get still, and then some anxiety arises. And do you have the the courage to say, I want to know what's under this. I want to know what's deeper than this. Or that part of us that's restless. I want to know what's under that. Or do we just kind of identify with the restlessness and then shift horizontally to something else? And so this is this moment. Jung's been at this for a year. New Year's has passed. He sits at his chair and he realizes, I have to go down deeper. Then later that day, he has a vision. He's in a dark cave. And this is the most important one. He's in a dark cave and across from him is a dwarf with leathery skin. I love that detail. He wades through an icy cave, wades through icy cave water, where he sees a glowing crystal and it's red. There's running water and a corpse floats by him. Looking closely, he notices that the corpse is a young girl with blonde hair and a wound in her head. Then she's followed by a gigantic black scarab and then by a red new sun rushing out of the depths of the cold, dark water. Transfixed with the sun rising, Jung tries to replace stone over the opening of the cave, but the fluid wells up and blood starts spurting from the stone for a long time and the vision ends. He writes, I did not pause to consider that the spirit of the depths from time immemorial and for all time to come possess a greater power than the spirit of the times who changes with the generation and withers with the flowers of summer. So then he has this realization that actually he's two people. It's not just personality number one and personality number two but that the part of him that's narrow is the spirit of the times. It's a very interesting way of thinking. So he's, he's let go of this idea of the ego now. He's just saying that part of us that is constantly uh, creating a story about ourselves, he has a new name for it. He calls it the spirit of the times, which is a bit tongue-in-cheek. Um, and then he calls the rest... Uh, um, time immemorial. So the other part of us just is, is just deep memory and is constantly changing. When we sit, I think we can feel this. When we sit, there's a part of us that's the spirit of the times, that's obsessed can't sit for too long without checking our email. I hear the sound. Some of you must be checking it while we're sitting. It's like painful not to see what's happening on Facebook. 
So this is the spirit of the times, this part that's just clinging to culture, right? And also the culture, creating the culture of our own self-identity. And then there's something much deeper. And I, I think we know this, that when we get settled in meditation practice, one of the things that happens is the construct of time dissolves. Right? When we're more in the ego, we're more impatient and more aware of the time. And we're more just feeling the breath and seeing images come and go, thoughts come and go. There's a sense of deeper time or deep time. Or what Dogen calls uji or uh, being time. It's being time. The Buddha and Jung, and I'm going to throw in uh, Patanjali too, uh, really have an allegiance uh, to the fallen world, uh, the world of brokenness, the world of multiplicity, the world of images, the world of being unsatisfied, the world of aging, the world of being in a body. And the problem of being separated from what we love, the problem of being continuously unsatisfied. And for Jung, the problem is not in us. The problem is that we think we're separate from this deeper world that we're not listening to. Once you open the door, um, the world starts coming in. And um, for Jung, it comes in most prominently through dreams and through images. Um, It's interesting because uh, one thing I used to be very interested in in my 20s was Saturn. And, you know, in, in the myths of Saturn in Greece... I think I'm taking a tangent. <laughs> in, the, to, in the midst of Saturn in Greece, to drop into Saturn, to drop into the mind of Saturn, is actually to become more flexible and more creative and more wide-ranging. And when I started practice uh, in a kind of a full-time way when I was 20, um, I, wanted, I just wanted to be enlightened. And actually, what happened was I became very depressed. I was really depressed for pretty much three years. And maybe that's the tsunami of blood. Um, And one of the things that I turned to at that time, aside from practice, was Jung. Because I felt this sense that for Jung, there was something about depression that was creative. I think in our culture, where we're so focused on productivity and consumption, I think we forget sometimes that our bodies and the psyche have a purpose. They're compensatory. They're self-regulating. It's like homeopathy 101, right? And... When we start becoming depressed, there's this kind of idea in our culture that it's bad, that we have to get to the happy place, which in my mind means produce, 
and consume. If you go to India, you drop out of the culture, you can probably find a free lunch somewhere. Here, try going and finding a free, you know, you just go to the foot of TD Bank and just say, I'm going into my depression, I need to stop working for a while, I have a lunch. You know, it's probably doubtful that they're going to hand you a lunch. Um, but, you know, what do we do with everybody who can't handle the speed and the pressure of, of our world right now and its focus on, on this high-level uh, productivity? And to see that depression is about being low and slow and sad and embodied and blue. I think Duke Ellington had something like 80 songs with the title blue. And how do we listen to our depression? How do we listen to our sadness as though the sadness... Well, I I wouldn't even say depression is sadness. Depression is just a lower, slower way of being. And I think depression is so painful when we're trying to get out of it all the time. So how can we become intimate with depression in a way where we treat it like a god. We treat it like something on an altar. We treat it as something we're devoted to. At the beginning of Asana class tonight, I was talking about this chant we do, Vande Gurunam, which comes from this text, I think I'm taking a tangent, <laughs> called the Yoga Taravali. And the Yoga Taravali is this amazing text. Um, it was Patabi Joyce's uh, favorite text, um, he actually used to say that the author was his great, 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 great something grandfather. Um, and in the text, Shankaracharya, who's the author of the text, takes all of the main techniques of yoga and turns them into goddesses that one devotes themselves to. So he says things like, I bow, Vande, so I bow to the goddess of Mulabandha. It's basically your pelvic floor. Then he does like the goddess of your throat, then the central axis of your body, then your inhale, then your exhale. Anyways, it just keeps going. It gets really absurd. I was joking in class that if you don't do LSD anymore, you should just read that chant. Um, Or you could do both, but that's a whole other workshop. Um, But the point is, is that even when we practice yoga... We start with this chant that's devotional. That's saying, what, what I'm going to practice is devotion to what's actually arising. So, when depression is arising, why can't we actually practice devotion to it? Jung develops a whole creative life out of devotion to images. Out of devotion to a depression. Um, what I found interesting about Saturn was just this sense that when Saturn's around, uh, it, in, in Greek sense, in a Jungian sense, in a Buddhist sense, it actually expands who we are. It stretches who we are. It makes the mind much more fertile. So you could say that both Jung and the Buddha had this real allegiance to what wounded them, and were able to really devote themselves to what wounded them. 
Um, I know there's a lot of you who are therapists, and maybe we'll talk about this next week more, but, you know, as therapists, really what we're interested in doing is just trying to get our patients interested in their experience. We're trying to get the people we work with interested in what's going on for them. And I think why Jung is an inspiring story for us as meditators is he's totally interested in what's showing up with him and is able to be intimate with what's showing up with him without running away. Without running away. One thing that's frustrating about reading Jung is when he uses case examples. I don't know if anybody's been doing the homework, the reading, but he gives these amazing cases and then he doesn't say what happens to them. And the only, he only uses cases to show how he helps someone get interested in their experience. It's a very strange... So he'll, he'll give some dreams, and he'll talk about how his work was to get the person interested in the images of the dream, and that's it. As if like the whole teleology of his, of his process is just to get people interested in an inner life. And in a way, maybe, this is the tragedy that we're suffering from now, is being so glued, so adhered to, to, to form, to outer form, superficial form. And how do we drop into the place where we're interested in an inner life, cultivating an inner life, knowing what our calling is, and knowing if we've had a calling that maybe... A few years into it, it changes. Some people are like, well, my calling was being a dentist, successful dentist. As if, like, a calling doesn't change. And a part of the self-regulating system of the psyche, according to Jung, is it's going to present hallucinations. Well, it starts small. (laughs) Dreams, images. But eventually, intense physical symptoms to help self-regulate a persona that's become too narrow. And all the cases he uses in the essay that we've been looking at um, describe this. And um, I could go on, but but I'll just say, you know, if the the, the punchline is that if you are willing to lose everything, um, you might discover who you are. <laughs> Class dismissed. <laughs> so, um, can I? Each of you has your own life. If you try to see it, you can't. The darkness is dark. Dark. What is your light? So in a way, what we're talking about is uncertainty. What Jung opened up to is the unknown, is uncertainty. And this is exactly what makes you free. And uncertainty makes freedom possible because certainty is what blocks our creativity. It's what blocks the inner life. 
our certainty is toxic. And whether we come at it from the Buddhist perspective or from the Jungian perspective, uh, the, the uncertainty is beginner's mind. And beginner's mind is the mind of creativity, and beginner's mind is the mind of compassion. Beginner's mind is the mind of devotion. And this is the attitude we need, I think, to, to have a richer life. And to leave this adolescent phase of spiritual practice that we have right now, I think, on this continent, which is about just trying to get happy. I think that's the same kind of consumerism that is getting us uh, deeper into this uh, time of anxiety. So, I didn't really follow my notes. (laughs) What did you hear tonight? What's coming up for you? Uh, Please don't be shy. Also feel free to stretch your legs if you have them still. What what do you hear? Yeah. Um, My my quick question is, um, you mentioned before that Jung was dropping through issues, but you've also said at the same point, like, at other times to not bring issues to the pillow when you when you come to meditate. So yeah. in a really simplistic way, I guess. I'm well, that's a good question. Oh. Yeah, it's a bit simplistic. <laughs> <laughs> um. uh, you, yes. Uh, I don't think when I hear Jung describing his experience that he's trying to work through any issues he's just dropping in and listening Um, when we're in meditation practice it's really important that you don't use the space of meditation to try and fix your problems we're dropping underneath that. So in that way, I think there's a comparison where Jung gets into painting, he gets into exploring his experience as a kind of meditative practice. Um, but I think... I, you know, when I, I have a friend who's a neuroscientist who's really into Jung, and I was talking to him recently while I was in Colorado, and he kept saying to me, imagine if Jung meditated wouldn't it be amazing if Jung could realize these archetypes realize these patterns realize these images and then also see through them because it seems like he never really did that it seems like these patterns were always calling to him in a certain way but he never really describes the appearance of seeing them as empty So in a way, they're always meaningful. And I think the images always having meaning, I think, are the limit uh, of of some of Jung's thinking. And I haven't really critiqued Jung too much, but that's one of them. So at some level, yes, the meditator and Jung are doing the same thing in this phase. And at another level, the meditator, I think, is dropping below images, as we even explored in our navel.
Lori. It makes me nervous um, when you talk about um, letting go and yeah. and um, dropping in mm-hmm. and uh, connecting with our depression or our slower state. Yeah. I think Young was lucky because he survived, but mm-hmm. a lot of people don't recover. Mm-hmm. And I think you have to keep that in mind. Mm-hmm. That this could be kind of a romantic notion of dropping into a certain state and letting go of everything and yeah. painting and writing. Mm-hmm. But there are a lot of examples of people who never yeah. pull out of that and yeah. never survive it, yeah. unlike young. Yeah. So yeah. I just get a little bit nervous about the way yeah. we're talking about this. Yeah. I think that's valid. I think that Jung writes in a romantic way about himself. Um, I personally have a romantic investment in Jung's story, but (laughs) um, I also think that the process of healing, and I've said this probably a million times, only happens through intimacy. And that we're living at a time where to be intimate with how we feel and to be intimate with the slower pace of the body sometimes is threatening to our cultural view of ourselves. And it needs articulation. And the poets do it, but they're going extinct. And I think it's really important that we're able to learn how to drop into our experience because, you know, even the medical system is so incredible at helping us when we have pain, right? I just spent two days working with doctors and clinicians. And one of the main themes that came up was like, like how we can help people in pain with meds. But actually, it only helps really a very small amount. And that in the medical system, we don't have a good way of helping people with the suffering part. With the suffering part. And a lot of it, some doctors were saying that I found very interesting, is actually impatience. We don't have time to sit by someone's bed and really explore with them the the kind of emotional life of their illness. So I agree both are true. But in Jung's defense, Jung says over and over again, and I haven't said this, that you can't go through this without a guide. And for Jung, his guide were images. And I think that that's actually what kept him in this for so long. I think one of the great things about having teachers and teachings is that sometimes we have real guides who who can help us along because they know the maps, maybe a little more than we can see the map at the time. So your point's well taken. Yeah. Cassandra. To add on to what Lori said, I, um, I also have a problem with this process. I think it's very self-consuming, and I like the word consumption. Mm-hmm. Because it's that, like, he's so self-consuming in his process, and it's like, seems narcissistic. 
mm-hmm. and just all about him and his stuff. And I know, and and I think there needs to be a balance between how can we be intimate? I like that word too, with our productivity and our consumption. And why does it have to be that bad? This is good, or either or. And I think, I guess, for me, I think what helps me in healing too is not being like sitting obviously and dropping and also being productive and being intimate with my work and showing up in a full way there out yeah. in the world. Um, yeah. So, yeah, consumption product- and productivity, being intimate with that. I don't know if anyone talks about that or anything, but how can I he, he doesn't, but I think your point's very similar to Lori's, and, and I, I totally agree. I mean, I, I think that there's a way of investing too much in unconscious material and it becoming eventually a kind of navel-gazing. And in my own life, that's one of the reasons why I started practice. Because my studies were in uh, psychoanalysis. And I found in that world, it was very good for certain areas in my life, but it wasn't going to make me free. Because it was really good at learning patterns, but there was no technology in it for learning how to let the patterns go. And for me, meditation won. But the rest didn't go away. It's still there. And sometimes that paradigm is really helpful to me. But it's not my primary practice. So I, I, I completely agree. It's like if you have a friend who goes into Jungian analysis and starts getting into dream work, and sometimes you lose them for a few years. <laughs> yeah. One of the, I, I didn't get into it at the same level as the individual level, but one of the things you said about uncertainty really struck a chord. Part of the reason is that there was a distinction made by the point one between the first and the And the importance of that is that the language of first is really about what you knew and how concrete work made us. And in fact, you didn't talk about their lives now in terms of risk or returns or their plans, yeah. and I would argue probably more properly spoken about the machines. Yeah. I can't think of a single instance where a risk calculation led to a breakthrough that mattered. I can think of where yeah. embracing uncertainty led to all kinds of things. Oh, yeah. yeah. But risk is a, um, at least I've heard, at least in the world I have, risk is the language that allows people to deal with the difficult things. And certainly is generally not only individually, but in fact, like the organizational people. Yeah. And I keep wondering, well, why is that performance so poor? Yeah. And often because we are measuring it, we're talking about it the wrong way, and we've decided that uncertainty is bad as opposed to uncertainty is bad. Yeah. That's a great point. And I think, you know, one other way of bringing Jung down a little bit is think about what was going on at the time in Zurich and Vienna. I mean, Mahler, Klimt, Schiele, like all these incredible artists who were really breaking apart the the structure of what's acceptable in painting, in music. Things were becoming so dramatic. Images were becoming so colorful. I don't know how many of you know Mahler's work, but it's like so big, you know. Um, Jung is so big, you know. So um, 
I, I think that that's a really interesting point. Is like what it means to take that risk, and also to see that that risk was not being taken by Jung alone. It was the spirit of the culture he was in also at the time, um, the counterculture at the time. Some of you might also know that some people who, who there was a lot of artists who started flocking to see Jung. The most famous, of course, is Picasso. Picasso tried over and over for a 10-year period to meet Jung and get to know him. And, uh, somebody else. Yeah, go on. I was just thinking, to, to your point, Kathy, too, about that sense of having a, a path. And I think for some people, your work falls into alignment with your path. And for some people, it doesn't. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't know whether that's fate or what that is, but mm-hmm. um, I think he had a unique path or calling that he was drawn to. Mm-hmm. There's nothing wrong with loving, consuming, and producing if you're in the right, you know, if you're in the right place with it. Mm-hmm. But it, it's following that inner voice or that yeah. instinct. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think what I've always found uh, fascinating about Young is um, I don't, I haven't done as much study as maybe you have, but. Was it, it seemed to me like the ultimate way of exploring your ego. And um, I wonder where, you know, so the Buddhist practice is in complete opposition to that. And so I'm, sometimes I, even myself, sometimes I feel threatened by the Buddhist practice because it almost seems to deconstruct my identity so much. Hmm. And um, I just wanted to know what your thoughts were. I mean, I was, I don't have any. <laughs> no, I, I, I don't know if I'd characterize... I don't think you were here last week. But last week... I think you have to be careful about talking about Jung's relationship with the ego because Jung had a really interesting way of talking about the ego. Jung was interested in a self that was uncontainable, that you can't know. It's identical to the, the Buddha's teaching and the spirit of Buddhism, is uh, that the self is in the dark. You can't know it. And what's your light? So, I don't know if you can set them up exactly in that way. Somebody else. Maybe a shy person. There he is. <laughs> Sebastian. Um, I don't know if, I'm, if I try to tie in some of the images that were arising for me and the concept of light and darkness and light not being able to see itself and to kind of bring in Cassandra's and Lori's point too. It's kind of... Um, and I can't see itself um, so you can drop into the darkness but at the same time for the light to see itself it could only see itself reflected in another eye or in another light mm-hmm. so it's kind of that balance mm-hmm. between not dropping too low and 
becoming completely annihilated by darkness, mm-hmm. but recognizing that our only way to see the light is drop into darkness, but stay afloat by looking at the light in someone else's eye or right. the light that radiates from right. another point in darkness. Right. Just images. Yes. Do you think Young would have dropped so much if he felt like he had a community of people who saw him? Like I don't, I don't know much, but I know like he, how people got him in the same way that people like you were saying he's from yeah. like a different time almost. Yeah. Like he wasn't understood as a child. Yeah, I think he wrote his biography like in he was eighty three or something, and at, in the epilogue, which is amazing, <laughs> he says. Um, that he's terribly lonely. And the experience of listening to images his whole life made him feel lonely and made him feel like... um, How does he say it? It made him feel like there were things he could intuit about people that they couldn't see in themselves, which made him feel separate from people. And then he saw that in a romantic way, that that's what made him kind of like a hero. So I, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't have that reading of his life. I, I, yeah. But isn't that the kind of community, I guess, because you can't see yeah. the light? That's why you yeah. have to, I don't know, like, like Gloria was saying, like, I'm, I'm definitely nervous about dropping down because I know that it would be really hard to come back, and I know that's why I stay in community, so that people can see my light. Yeah. Okay, well, let's be careful about creating this paradigm now where you drop down. Because um, when we practice, you drop down. But it's not like a place. You don't, like, drop down and, like, see you in two years. <laughs> it's like when, you, when someone comes to me and says, oh, I'm, I'm going to have a baby or whatever. I'm always like, okay, see you in a year. <laughs> or, you know, I just got into school. <laughs> Going back to school. Um, and now people come in and say, I'm dropping down. <laughs> um, just to tie these two pieces in together, next week what I want to do is, I, I'm not going to lecture. Uh, we're just going to come in and we're going to practice dropping down together, if anybody comes. <laughs> because I don't want to set up this idea that like, we're up here and we have to do this kind of like dropping down into this ocean, you know, with scary things and whatever. Dropping down is immediate. It doesn't have to be two years. It's immediate. In this moment, can you drop? Can you drop it? Can you be intimate with what's going on? Draw what you think is going on. As Dogen says, this is it. So again, I think we have to we have to pull away from this idealized notion of dropping down for two years, and see that dropping down also means the courage to drop it right now, in this moment, in this breath. Just drop it. And can you shift? Can you drop it? There's all kinds of ways we see, especially relationally, where we can't drop it, where we're fixed. It's like Gestalt 101. Where you get frozen. How you get frozen. (laughs) 
And some people go around like this for like a decade or two decades, totally frozen. They learn how to respond to their environment by checking things out and pleasing people because they're really good at knowing their environment. But then when it's time for them to know themselves, they can't drop because they're just focused out here all the time. So you can read your environment really, really well. And then you have no inner life. So that's what we're going to explore next week. Kelly. Yeah. I was just going to say tonight, um, Gilden has said, and then talking about um, losing control, yeah. it sort of fit tonight because I really felt that tension when I focused on my inhale too much. And then as soon as I could let that go, um, they kind of, everything just meshed together in a more fluid way. Uh-huh. So thinking about losing control is on my mind lately a lot because preparing for a birth and stuff, but what's yeah. going to happen if I lose control? Yeah. And, um, and then what would be so bad about that as who said about community? Oh, yeah. But with community, we have to lose control in a container that can hold us. And, you know, who are we to say now? But I think with a better container, maybe Jung could have done some other really interesting things. And I think with his great interest in meditation, it would have been amazing if he could find a way where he could practice it, not just know about it. And us too. So, we'll finish by chanting.